0: love hearing all that conversation and just people connecting and relationship. And we're so privileged to have a Savior that gives us that gift of relationship. Um, my name is Diane Hendricks, and I have the privilege of bringing you God's Word this morning. May you please rise. I'll be reading from Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. I'll give you a moment to find it. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Diane. And if you don't know me,
1: my name is Mike Fay, and I'm the lead elder here. And um, just grateful for you if you're here. I know there's a lot of people visiting family, and so welcome. It's great to have you here this morning. We will actually be in the book of the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament. And if you don't know where it is, just start flipping through until you get to the one page or two pages that it's not. There's a table of contents in front, if that helps. Um, now, during this time of year, uh, it's it's so easy if you're like me. It's so easy to become discouraged, isn't it? By, you look outside and all you see is desolation. Right? All the leaves are off the trees and it's kind of gray. and There's a little bit of sun, but the sun is way down south. You know, It's not really visiting us up here in the north. You, you walk outside and you're numbed by the cold. And some of us get depressed with the long, dark nights. Right, and you know, my family and I were um, we're tempted to just kind of hunker down and hibernate, and this is when all the like Netflix subscriptions get re- reintroduced into the household, and because we're waiting for something, right? We're waiting for light. We're waiting for the light to return, for the sun to come back, for warmth, for spring. And this really is the angst of Advent, this season leading up to Christmas, this season really leading up to right now. The word Advent simply means waiting, and it's a waiting and a longing for the light to come, a waiting for life to return. And Advent and this waiting can can really be a time of sorrow, but ultimately Advent is really a time of hope, isn't it? It's a time where we are called and encouraged to grab hold of a sure faith that something is coming that we cannot see, but we know is coming. It's, and it's even imperceptible, but even now, the days are, second by second, and minute by minute, getting longer. Ever since Thursday, they're getting longer. And the nights are shortening, and spring is on its way. And that is something to celebrate. (laughs) Now, the hymn that we're focusing on this Advent is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it beautifully really captures, in my mind, this sense of longing and waiting that we all have during this time. This faithful, hopeful waiting that's also displayed in the story that Diane just read for us. You have Simeon, this old man who's been waiting, and God has revealed to him somehow that he will not... Depart this life and this body and this mortal coil until he has seen and laid his eyes on the Messiah. And you wonder like, what every day was like. Is it today, Lord? Is it today, Lord? And you get so many of those days strung together. And perhaps you begin to doubt, but Simeon faithfully waited. And Anna as well, this prophetess coming into the temple. Every day waiting for this consolation to come. And when the, when the Christ child comes, these two faithful believers who've waited so long for him rejoice. Because what they've been waiting for has arrived. So it is possible, these, these scriptures give us a, a picture that it is possible to wait faithfully. Right, The longing isn't wrong, and the scriptures would even show us that the complaining about waiting is even a little bit okay. Right? That's what lament is about. God, how long? How long are we going to have to wait? How long are you going to hold on to your promises and not keep them? Oh, Lord, how long? Come, Emmanuel. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. It's okay to be dismayed that he hasn't kept his promises yet, and yet we can do that faithfully. And if we're able to do it faithfully, guess what? We're also able to wait faithlessly. That's possible as well. Like when we interpret or look at the slowness of God fulfilling His promises, the day after day wait, and we take that as an absence of the promise itself. Maybe God really didn't promise that. Or maybe there isn't even a God who made a promise and will keep his promises. So we question or we abandon God's promise, we abandon God himself and kind of go about our own thing, our own pursuits, our own lives, abandoning what we thought we wanted to wait for at one time. And this morning we're faced, I think, with this very temptation in the face of any kind of discouragement that comes in your life, in the face of despair, we are tempted to abandon God's promises. It's the same temptation that faces all of those, everyone who waits for God to keep his promises, like Simeon and Anna, and like those who in the days of Haggai returned to Jerusalem at the end of the exile. So we're going to take us back even further in the biblical story, about 500-600 years before Christ came. And around the year 586-587 BC, the Babylonian Empire, who, who were the bosses of the earth at the time, They came in and they conquered the kingdom of Judah. They came into Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple, laying it bare. And they left Jerusalem in ruins. And they deported most of the inhabitants of Judah away to Babylon. Now, some 70 years or so later, a group of of Jewish exiles had returned, Right about 540, so not quite 70 years, returned to the promised land. And Haggai comes along, this prophet, this preacher, about 20 years later, about the year 520 BC, he comes to Jerusalem to the people. And when he sees, and he comes on the scene and sees what's happening, he sees that these returned exiles who have come back from Babylon to their homeland, they've come to Jerusalem, what they've done is that they've given up building God's temple. And God's temple remains in ruins And they haven't built it, but they've gone about building their own lives. They've kind of stepped aside from what they thought maybe God was doing in discouragement and went about building their own private lives. So building their own houses, planting crops, and going about their business. In the first chapter of Haggai, there's only two chapters. The first chapter is the prophet coming to the people and exhorting them in 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 their misplaced priorities telling them that God has actually withheld His hand of blessing on all of their private endeavors because they have withheld their hand from building His temple. Now for God's people, the temple was a symbol of Israel's unique relationship. And the, the biblical word for that is covenant. So the temple was a symbol of God's covenant, His special unique relationship with them. It symbolized God's presence with His people. It symbolized God's blessing on them. And when the the people of Israel were obedient, when they submitted to God and His law and His ways, their prosperity was symbolized by this massive structure that, that was pure and beautiful and grand and glorious. It was a symbol of their obedience, their relationship with God. The temple was their access also. It was their access to a relationship with God. So they would come and they would offer sacrifices that would cover and atone for their sins. They would come there to worship and pray. So so when the first temple, the one that Solomon had built around 1000 BC, when that temple was ruined, when that temple was destroyed, it was really a powerful sign of God's judgment of God cutting them off from him because of their disobedience and because of their rebellion. But The temple was also a symbol of Israel's national identity, who they were as a people. And really, because of that, it was a very real symbol of God's kingdom, of his rightful place to rule and reign over. Over and amongst his people. So, when the people turned from that true identity, when they turned away from their king, God took the temple away. So, this explains why Haggai was so upset that the people were putting more energy into their own houses than they were into God's house. Because what they were doing was putting more energy into their own kingdoms than they were into God's kingdom. They'd abandoned rebuilding God's kingdom and replaced it with building their own houses. And so in their apathy toward the temple, they were actually showing their apathy toward their God, Yahweh. You know, they had, like us, they had other pressing concerns in their life, right? They had to make money. They had to plant crops. They had to pursue their career, raise their families, build things that were so important. They had these pressing concerns in their lives. And quite honestly, things are important. It's busy. God can wait. So Haggai comes and preaches to them. He calls them to rebuild the temple. And the crazy thing about Haggai 1 is that something miraculous happens and the people respond. So in Haggai chapter 1 at verse 12, it says All the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And how many of you are wondering why I'm in Haggai on Christmas Eve? Okay, I know you're thinking that, so I'll just address that. We'll get there. Don't worry about it. Okay, now the work, though, building this temple was not without difficulty. So for a month, the people leaned in. They come and they begin to build the temple. temple. And about a month in... Uh, into these labors, their original enthusiasm, this readiness to do the work begins to wane. It begins to kind of fall off, and maybe some of them, you know, come into work late or start taking long breaks or, you know, just kind of go back to building their own houses or working on their fields. And some of the older generation, the really old people there, could remember the original temple. They could remember Solomon's temple in all of its glory. And they despaired, because in comparison, they were really just building kind of a shack, and they could never hold a candle to the original. Really, they look at it, and this is a joke. So they became discouraged. They began to move away, and Haggai addresses them again. Here's what he says in Haggai two verse three: "Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing?" In your eyes. And you can actually go back to this story in the book of Ezra chapter 3. When the foundation of the temple was laid. And the old men who could remember Solomon's temple actually burst into tears. They were weeping loudly because it just wasn't the same. And everyone else who didn't know that was rejoicing. And you couldn't tell the rejoicing from the weeping. And the, the feeling may have been something like this. No matter what we do, we're never going to be able to achieve what we used to have. So why try? You might know that feeling. You know, you remember the good old days when when life was good, when things were going well, when gas was less than a dollar a gallon. Right? Back then, when God's blessings were abundant, But now you look around and it feels like constant winter. It feels like a desert waste, desolation. God doesn't seem to be present. He doesn't seem to be attending to anything. You look at the state of the world and the wars that are going on in the world and the tragedy that's going on in the world. You look at the state of the church. Look at the state of the nation. The state of morality. The state of the economy. You look at the state of the environment. You may even look at the state of California, and you lose hope. <laughs> Does God care anymore? Is God doing anything? Right? We, all, we all know what it's like to live in despair, but it's in the midst of our deepest despair that God speaks a word of hope, a word of encouragement to us. So look at Haggai 2, verse 4. And Haggai addresses Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the, the high priest and the people, and he says, This, yet now be strong. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It's easy to become discouraged in the work of the Lord. It's easy to become discouraged in trying to build what He has called us to build and, and do the things He's called us to do. So, so Haggai seeks to encourage them, and that word encourage simply means to put courage into. He's seeking to put courage into them with two commands Be strong and fear not. And when we are weak and fearful, these are the very exhortations we need God to give to us. Right? Just as the, the angel, right, said to Mary when he came and announced the birth of God's Son, Mary, do not be afraid. Do not fear. So Haggai continues, and in verses six to nine actually gives us, gives them and gives us reasons not to fear. Haggai 2 6. The Lord of hosts. And I find in these four verses at least five reasons not to fear. And the first, we should not fear because God is with us. So look at verse four. He says, Work, why? For I am with you. Then in verse 5, he says, my spirit remains in your midst. In other words, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm with you. And even though it may not seem like it, I have not abandoned you. And he's not abandoned any of us, even though it may seem in our lives like God is silent, like he's absent, like our prayers just bounce off the ceiling. But here's what the scripture says. He is here, even now just as Jesus himself, the one who is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is what he said just before he was taken into heaven. He said this, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We do not need to fear because God is with us. We also Should not fear because God keeps his promises. In these few verses, verses 6 through 9, we're told four times. Basically, this is what Yahweh says. This is what the Lord God says. This is what the Lord of hosts declares. Four times. And when God speaks and repeats himself, it's a sign that he means it. In other words, you can write it down in ink. You can take it to the bank. When God says it, he will do it. And so it's a simple reminder, really, of the truthfulness and faithfulness of God to keep his promises. In verse 5, God also recalls his previous promise, his covenant that he made when he brought the people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, a covenant that he still here in Haggai is being faithful to. And just as he shook, he says, I shook that mountain. And just as I shook that mountain when I made my first covenant with you, I will once again and soon shake the entire heavens and the earth because I am bringing not just a covenant, but a better covenant, a new and greater covenant that will come. God keeps his promises, even when it doesn't feel like it. Third, the third reason we should not fear is because God is sovereign over all. And that basically just means God's in charge of all of it. He's in control of the creation, the sky, verse 6, the sky, the land, and the seas that He'll shake. But He's also sovereign over every human power. He's sovereign over the great empires of the world, like the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire and the British Empire and the American Empire. They do not make Him tremble in fear. Rather, it says in verse 7, He shakes them. So while God's kingdom remains unshakable, He will shake every anti-God system in the world. None of them will last. And here's the crazy thing, that even as followers of jesus we're tempted to place our trust in so many of these systems to put our confidence in the political systems or national systems or economic systems or whatever system it is the systems of entertainment and power and ease and comfort and security we see in them power and glory and we want to grab on to that but no matter how hard you try and what you try haven't you found them all to fall short God is going to shake them all, and all that will be left is his kingdom. Fourth, we should not fear because God will provide in unexpected ways. So, so the people that were working to rebuild the temple are dismayed because it's small, it's humble, it's not grand and glorious like they would expect it to be. Hey, if God's going to do something, it should be big and glorious and grand, but this doesn't look great at all. But God reminds them that he's actually the one building his kingdom, not them. And they they don't have to make it attractive. They don't have to make it glorious. They don't have to make it grand. Their job is simply to be faithful in the work of building. and God will take care of the rest. So in verse 7, God says that he will shake the nations. And this is the picture that comes into my mind. I picture God with this huge piggy bank. That's all the nations of the world in his hand. And he's just shaking out of them every last penny. The gold and the silver, he says, and the world belonged to him, verse 8. And he will build his temple from the pockets of those who don't even know him. And historically, this actually took place. Again, go back to Ezra. And you see that the emperors Cyrus and then Darius and then Xerxes, they all sent significant sums of money from the royal treasuries to build and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And both Isaiah And the prophet Micah speak of this, the wealth of the nations, Isaiah chapter 60, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. People may bring to you the wealth of the nations. And in Micah chapter 4, you shall devote their gain. In other words, the nations will bring this and you'll devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And God is just saying, I'm going to funnel it all to where I want it to go because it all belongs to me anyway. Do you ever wonder where the next dollar, or the next meal, or the the next good news is going to come from? Often it will come from a place you don't expect. And even in that, God is faithful. Now finally, we should not fear because God promises to bring peace. Verse 9 says, In this place I will give peace. And I think if you were to cut us all open and look at our hearts... Look at our motivations. Look at what we really want, what we really desire. I think at the core of each of us, you'll find a deep desire for peace. We all want peace with each other, especially people that are living in our house. We want peace with our neighbors. We want peace in our nation. We want peace amongst the nations in the world. We want peace ultimately with God. But God's peace cannot be achieved by human power. It cannot be achieved by diplomacy or statecraft. It can only be achieved through the gospel of the kingdom when people from all nations will come and bow before King Jesus. That's when peace will happen. Isaiah 60 again. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Again, Micah 4 Verse 2, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the mountain of Yahweh, the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. All nations will come, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, in peace to the kingdom and the King. and God will bring peace. Now, there's an unusual... And difficult to translate clause in verse 7. And this is what brings us to Christmas Eve. In the English Standard Version, here's what it says in verse 7. It says, I will shake all nations. Remember that piggy bank. So that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And on this translation, the phrase clearly refers to the gold and silver, the treasures from all nations. He refers to it again in verse 8, that God claims in order to build his temple and by extension to build his kingdom. And that's seemingly in the context when Haggai was preaching, that's exactly what he was talking about, was this this wealth, these treasures, that was the meaning of the phrase. However, over time, this, this phrase has been translated and understood in quite different Ways throughout the centuries. And this is exemplified best probably in the early uh, King James English translation in verse 7. It says this And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. So you can see how one Hebrew word could alternatively be translated treasures or desires. What do most people desire? Money. Because they think they'll get peace through it. But that's a treasure. That's a desire. So what the nations desire more than their treasure is not much of anything. But what is at, what was actually um, some ancient Jewish scholars who were reading through Haggai and interpreted this phrase as a reference to the coming Messiah. In other words, in their, in their reading, the desire of all nations would be a person, who would one day come into the temple and fill it with greater glory than it had ever known. And then about the 5th century, Christians picked up on this idea and ran with it, and they applied this phrase as a title of Christ, which is how it made it into our hymn for today, the stanza which reads like this. So come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease, fill all the world with heaven's peace. Is that right? Should we think of Jesus as the desire of nations? Well, let's follow the train of thought here, and I think we'll get there. When the tabernacle was completed, think all the way back to the book of Exodus. People are in the wilderness. God tells them, build this tent, and that's how I'll dwell among you in this tent, through the sacrifice and all these things. They build it. Exodus 4, the tabernacle is completed, and when it's completed, what happens? The glory of Yahweh fills the tabernacle so much so that the priests can't even go into it. They can't even go in to offer sacrifices. So the visible glory of Yahweh fills the tabernacle. Hundreds of years later, Solomon comes on the scene, King Solomon, and he builds this ginormous temple. And in 2 Chronicles 7, the same thing happens. They dedicate the temple, and God's glory again visibly fills the temple so that no one can go into it. Now, centuries have gone by, and after centuries of rebellion, we have the prophet Ezekiel, who has this vision of God's glory. And he visualizes, he sees this vision of God's glory actually coming up from the temple and departing, leaving the temple because of the rebellion of the people. But thankfully, about 33 chapters later, Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel then prophesies that God's glory will one day return to the temple. The prophet Zechariah hints that this will actually happen at the coming of the Messiah. So could this be the glory to which Haggai is referring here when he says the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory? Because when Jesus arrives, the gospel writers point to him And they say that He is actually the embodiment of God's glory. We have seen His glory, John says. John 1.14 The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when the infant Messiah first comes to the temple in the arms of His mother, Simeon grabs him and rejoices and consider his prayer. Luke 20, verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation, God, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is the baby. And glory to your people, Israel. So even in the baby Jesus, God's glory came to the temple. Then as an adult, Jesus returns to Jerusalem via the Mount of Olives, which was foretold by the prophets. He enters, he cleanses the temple in a prophetic act of judgment and purification, even though he's not even welcomed nor recognized as the Messiah. And later, Jesus will declare judgment on the temple, saying it will be destroyed again. And at the same time, he declares that he himself is the temple of God. So as the embodiment of God's glory, the new temple of God, Jesus is the only one in whom all human desire, the desire of all nations, can meet its appropriate fulfillment. He is the one who's calling people, you and me, and people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, to participate in His kingdom and to experience His glory. And eventually, I love this, because of Christ, this picture, there will one day be no more need for a temple at all, as we're told at the end of the book. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, that is Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light all nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory, or that is the treasures, and the honor of the nations. So yes, in the end, Jesus is the treasure of all nations. He is the desire of all nations. He is the temple of God. He is the glory of God. And because of him, we need not fear. God is with us. And His kingdom is alive and active. And like the Jews of Haggai's day, our job is not to try to make the kingdom more glorious. It's to faithfully and humbly do the work assigned to us, even when it looks like nothing. And as we do that, as we speak to the world that their desires will not ultimately be met by all the things the world offers us or tells us to do to find fulfillment, ultimately all those things will leave us empty, they'll leave us lonely, they'll leave us unfulfilled. Our true desires will only be met in Jesus, who is the embodiment of God's kingdom and His glory. So even though it doesn't look like it now, Jesus reigns. Even though it doesn't seem like it now, God's kingdom is alive and active here and now. Jesus is building a kingdom for himself. He's bringing the treasures from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we play a part in faithfully and humbly pointing people to Jesus, the true desire and true treasure of all nations. So do not fear, be strong and work for we have emmanuel god with us let's pray god we're grateful that you have sent emmanuel and you have sent him as a baby you didn't send him as a conquering king you didn't send him as some kind of mystical spiritual being you sent him as a child a very human child born of a very human mother taking on flesh and blood and walking the road that we have walked. Taking on our nature so that he might understand and commiserate with us, identify with us, but also so that he might become what we couldn't. So he might fulfill what we couldn't in our humanity and so that he might also pay for what we could not pay for our sins against you father thank you for providing a way through the christ child to come to you to be with us and as we look not only at the manger but at the cross we are just blown away with the salvation that you offer in jesus the desire of all nations lord may our hearts treasure him may we see his glory may we bring our own treasures and desires to him Lay them at his feet, just as the wise men did, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. But all our treasures, Lord, even our hearts, that we might treasure you, Jesus, above all. We're grateful for this Christmas time when we remember the coming of Jesus. And we say, looking forward, Maranatha, come again, Lord Jesus. Amen.